Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello. Hello. Hello, Bea. listeners. Hello, Mel. Hi, Bea. Mel just said, how are you? Mm, yeah, how are you? Uh, you know, like I have a babysitter and a husband in my house at the moment, and it's still not enough. Like mm. I'm still needed. Yeah, but- we always need our mums. I need my mum too all the time. Oh, <laughs> If you hear lots of um, screaming in the background around, oh, mum's working, or, you know, that could be from my husband or either of my children today. (laughs) So if you are in that situation as well, just lots of love, lots of love to everyone out there trying to do paid or unpaid work that involves children. It's big. That's our little introduction today. I was like, I feel like listeners just need to know where we're at when we record this. Totally. And B, I can see you're wearing your vulva today. It's not broken anymore. So I have a vulva necklace, everyone, and my child snapped it. He pulled my vulva and it snapped. And then my husband took it to to two jewellers, two men, and they had a very in-depth conversation about the fact that it's a vulva, not a vagina. Mm. And now they fixed my husband's wife, which is me's vulva. So you broke your vulva and then your husband took it to get fixed by two other blokes and the blokes fixed your vulva and now it's back on you. It is. It's back and it's back always in my mouth. I'm always oh. in my mouth. And you changed a tyre. Yes. Okay. So I, this is the context I put in my Instagram stories, me changing my tire and my husband was like recording. So I put a snippet of it in stories. And then I actually got a lot of requests to like, where was the rest of it? So I put the whole tire changing video on Instagram and along with the commentary, which ended up being pretty funny, if you ask me. But I did buy a little zippy car that would be fuel efficient that only just fits my birth kit in it, thinking that was a wise decision as a private midwife. But now I feel like I need a four-wheel drive because the number of river crossings that I had to do as a private midwife, like I did not think to myself that a river crossing would be part of my life. But in the middle of the night and you get cold and you're approaching this rushing water and I've been on the phone to my husband and said, um, there's like a river in front of me and I need to get over there because I'm the second midwife. He's like, yeah, just go. I'm like, okay, stay on the phone. I'm you unwind- walk it first. You've got to walk it first because you don't know what's underneath. You don't know how deep it goes. Well, it was. Use a stick. Right. Use a stick and you walk it. But right, next time just ring me. Don't ring okay. us. He's like, just go. Yeah, he's literally. Like, I know. And I said to him, I'm unwinding all my windows. He said, why? And I'm like, if I flip into the water I need to be able to climb out of the car yeah that was- under your seatbelt too yeah yeah under your seatbelt you walk it first so you know what the ground is because it could be concrete it could be road it could be like sand or or dirt like there's so many different surfaces you could be driving on and then the depth and the and the speed of the water these are yeah. all essential things oh, well, you need to do a forward driving course I do and he said floor it just go and I'm like I'm in this tiny car Anyway, I think we might get started, B. Let's get started. You're welcome, everyone, for enjoying that little introduction. This is episode five of the Great Birth Rebellion, and today we're talking all about the pelvic floor, pelvic bowl, anatomy, Mm. pelvis, muscle stuff. I've got some anecdotes, but B has done the heavy lifting with the prep because this is her area. Look, there's going to be multiple episodes on this. But I feel like today we will probably talk more around the pelvic bowl. And really, one thing I really want to address is is the words we use. Like pelvic floor, again, like you and I are big on language. Pelvic floor gives this um, image that, and, and so has the way we've been taught, 
is that this the muscles that the pelvic floor is made up mostly or only of muscles, which is untrue. It's made up of connective tissue um, as well, um, and, and there's a lot in the pelvic floor. And then we talk about it like a hammock that holds everything up. And there's a really incredible. I didn't. I see. I didn't put this in, and thinking I wasn't going to mention it. And we're like two minutes in, and I'm mentioning it. There's an incredible uh, physiotherapist in the UK, um, and we'll link her studies in and how you can watch her course. is like ten pounds. Her course is really epic, and she talks all about biointegrity. So basically, up until like the 1980s, we believed that the body worked in this top-down motion, and so absorbed force in like a top-down like a building you know and it's simply not true we've realized that since the 80s which was 42 years ago and we have this now we've realized there's this biotensegrity model which means if you've got one of those toys those um spheres that go out and in that's how our body absorbs force and so when we talk about the pelvic floor as muscles that hold everything up it's really incredibly damaging to people's emotional well-being around their bodies because we think that the muscles have to be really tight and strong to halt to do that. <clears throat> we think it's only the muscles. We forget about connective tissue, which is really important. So if you don't know much about connective tissue, there is an incredible video called The Fuzz Speech by Jill G-I-L-L Headley. We'll put it in the resources that if you're on the mailing list, you get access to. And if you're not on the mailing list, like I'm getting DMs already, pay, pay attention to this. You are going to be directed to the mailing list because I'm not paying somebody to give you free access to stuff. Get on the mailing list. The link's in our bios. That's where all the information is. Save us the admin fees, of, especially I pay people to answer my messages. So you're getting this for free. Sign up. The purpose yeah. of the mailing list, because we knew that when we started this podcast, we were going yeah. to get people asking, what's that research paper that you use? What was that name mm -hmm. that you said? Mm -hmm. so if you're on the mailing list every single week. I send out an email on the day that the new episode comes out and it's got all the papers. It's got the names that we talked about, the people, the courses, the books, all that kind of stuff in a resource, resource folder that you can access anytime. So that's what we got it. Yes. Yeah. So Jill Headley, the fuzz speech, it um, is a video of a cadaver, so a dead person. I feel like I never say that word right because I always get like, is it yeah, cadaver. cadaver. It is cadaver. cadaver, but I always want to say cadaver. cadaver. Um, I pronounce things differently all the time. You'll get used to that on this podcast. You'll want to correct me and you won't be able to. <laughs> Not you, festive. Mel, the listeners. The listeners. It feels festive, cadaver. Mm. It's Spanish. Yeah, for yeah, Cardiva. Like <laughs> yeah, Cardiva, like a festival. It's a, he does beautiful work. And this video is for free, but you can, if you're really interested in this kind of stuff and anatomy, you can actually pay to watch his video. And he's so respectful of the human that he's working on. He's really a beautiful human. He's very eccentric. So he does this video, so it goes for five minutes, and it's called The Fuzz Speech. And it talks about connective tissue. But basically our body is this incredible web and um, we grew up knowing about muscles and bones, but actually we're this delicate, intricate web of connective tissue and the bones and muscles are all kind of embedded in that web. And so if you think about a web and how it would absorb force, that is kind of the same model around biotensegrity. And the pelvic floor, when you look at the pelvis in its correct anatomical alignment, it is much more like a wall than a floor. And so when women hear things like that they've got a prolapse or incontinence, we automatically think, oh, that muscle is weak, everything is falling out. Um, Anna Krauss' work, she totally believes that prolapse is around tension, not weakness, um, and tension being from scar tissue, um, from trauma in the area, adhesions, investigations, and you just think about how much is done to that pelvic space from bleeding to sex to infertility, contraception, like a lot goes on in that in that space um and so she, her belief is that it's purely tension i believe that it's both um because i see that in the body i see weakness um and we need to strengthen things that are weak and we need to lengthen things that are tight um and if you think about the biotensegrity model on birth it just you know how the body can beautifully expand it's really incredible so well, i you, like to call it the pel pelvic bowl rather than the pelvic floor and that also takes into consideration that there's a lot more going on there there's other muscles like the obturator 
and the periformis. Um, there's lots of ligaments, lots of ligaments, and um, in our incredible organs. So what, what I'm hearing then, so rather than saying pelvic floor, we're going to refer to it as pelvic bowl. Well, the pelvic floor is a part of the pelvic bowl. So the pelvic floor refers to the muscles and connective tissue. So there's like two different layers of muscles. There's superficial. So superficial means close to the skin and then deeper muscles, um, which is like the next layer. And so the biotensegrity model came about because people were like, well, we can run and jump. And if we could not absorb force in a multidirectional way, then our knees would shatter every time we jumped like it, that that's not possible but a lot of our practice is based on the top-down notion and a lot of our language especially medicine is based on the top-down um notion and then you look at different allied health like it's the reason i love osteopathy so much yeah. is because they are very connective tissue based and they're very holistic and they see the body as one um and i i you know there are some epic chiros and physios out there that are very holistic too and I feel like chiropractics treat it quite holistically as well but typically osteo is like I'll go to my osteo and to release my feet and that then my pelvic floor will release and now I do internal release work and it's incredible the difference that the difference between just trying to release the pelvic floor as opposed to doing some work around the sacrum and the hips and the psoas first and then going in and the pelvic floor has already done half its work because the surrounding space or the pelvic floor has already released a little bit or it releases more because the things that are connected to it have had the opportunity to lengthen and release. So something about osteopaths as well. Mm, I saw your eyes light up when I said that word. I know osteopaths Ooh, just love them. I know, you know, um, I our family, our whole family has a quarterly appointment with our osteopath. Like I have mm-hmm. standing appointments with the osteo. I really believe that good alignment in that that osteopaths offer. And if your body is all in the right place for function, that you can really avoid a lot of ill health. And I recommend like body work and Mm. regular osteo appointments to all of my clients, even if they are well with no pain. It feels just like this amazing maintenance modality. But we need to talk about because this is big for pregnancy and birth and postpartum is alignment. We do not move correctly. We do not use our bodies as they were intended to to move. So as soon as we have a baby, we encourage them to pull themselves up on the change table, right? That is not a functional movement. Babies won't do that movement. They won't swing themselves up. And most adults don't have the ability to do that. They don't have, you can't do a sit up, but we do that movement so much. And this is really what I see happen to the core and pelvic floor postpartum is because pregnancy is this incredible stretch state that it's meant to be. Uh, birth is a is a combination of contraction and stretch um, in order to, to make the body birth the babe. And then postpartum needs to be a contraction state to bring things back um after the stretch but what we often do is we're in this stretch state and then we put force on that stretch by our movements like getting out of bed and our obsession in our culture with taking our babies away from our bodies so if you've ever been to a gym and you've gotten a weight and you've held it like at your chest and then you've taken that weight away from your body like you would to put a baby in a car seat or a cot or a pram or a bath or a bouncer or the floor, right, or to give it to another person, that exercise, like you talk to an exercise physiologist, that is a hardcore exercise. It's one of the coolest core training exercises you can do. Um, It's, you know, far better than sit-ups and planks and stuff because you're really using that whole core unit to stabilize you if you're activating your core. Now, most of us have not been trained to activate our core properly. This is why people get neck and back pain when they do core exercises because they're not actually contracting the core muscles, especially the deep core muscles, which stabilize us. We use our necks and our backs and and we're doing it in an incorrect alignment. So if you're doing that movement and you're doing it repetitively, like how many times do you get out of bed in postpartum? 
How many times do you take your baby away? Like I remember when I had Banj. So Louis co-slept with me from the minute he was born. Um, but Banjo, it took me a while to kind of work through that journey and social expectations and messages and mixed messages and all the rest of it. It's huge. We could do it. We should do an episode on co-sleeping. I think that would be really important. And so I would have to put him into the Moses basket and out, and that is a huge thing on your body. Like the best thing I did for my body postpartum second time around was co-sleep because I wasn't getting out of bed, and a lot of women get out of bed and then they force themselves to go to the toilet as well postpartum, which is messing with that whole brain-to-bladder messaging system. And we're forcing ourselves to wee. And so we're pa- often power peeing and power peeing is that strain, right? So we've got all this strain in the abdomen through the connective tissue that holds the muscles together, picking up our babies and moving, right? So when I lived in the Solomon Islands and we lived in a um, hut with no electricity and no running water and we slept on the floor. When you sleep on the floor, you don't have the need to swing yourself up out of bed because you don't have to put your feet down on the floor. And so you actually roll over and push yourself up just like children do. So we got obsessed with taking everything off the ground. So we sit on chairs at tables. We don't squat. You have to learn to squat before you can learn to stand and walk. So you said before that we're not moving as we should. Mm. Can you describe movements and things that we should be starting with and moving? Yeah, squatting. Like Ina May Gaskin talks about 300, 300 squats a day. So right now, you people at home can't, people listening can't see me, but I'm sitting in a squat. So I don't sit on a chair. I sit on a, a bolster or a roller and I sit in a supported squat all day. So most of us can't squat. It's, it's got to do with ankle flexibility and, and strength. So most of our ankles are unable to sit in that position anymore because they haven't had that range of movement. Basically, it's everything we do. We don't sit in a squat anymore. We don't poo in a squat. Pooing, you know, I'm so passionate about pooing, but Western toilets, ruinous. Chairs, you ruinous. Squat, do you poo in a squat, Do you poo in a squat? I poo in a squat with a, with the assistance of a stool. Yes. So we're talking talking supported squats, right? Like supported like, squats. Like free free flapping like squats. If I'm out bush, I will poo in a squat because it's so much nicer for your bum cheeks. Okay. Like oh, um, I, I have a dream poo. of I okay. love they're my bush poos. I love bush poos. So so many people say that. Like Mick says that. I love bush poos. If you've if right now they're like, we're just turned off for half our listeners. But <laughs> Bush poos, people love them because they're easy. That's how we're meant to poo. And so the deeper your supported squat on a toilet, the better because your bum is really meant to be down around your ankles, right? Poo, and so right. Western to-, to poo. And so this is why we, th- like, we really are ruined from the minute we're born because we're, you know, we're forced to be conditioned to our environment. And so I see it with toilet training. Kids get constipated and I did that with the 66s and 99s that we loved from the yeah. episode three yes. um, because I, I don't actually believe it's constipation. It's incorrect alignment. And so the, the body is now struggling to poo with the pelvic floor kinked basically, and the rectum gets kinked. And so little kids, especially small kids, often get past it because they sink into the toilet bowl. So their knees are actually quite higher, but their feet are still dangling. And so this is if you are pushing on the toilet in birth or trying to get your placenta out on the toilet, your feet need to be on something. They need to be supported. Heels need to be in line with toes. Knees need to be higher than hips. And the higher you can get them, the better. So I never poo without a... um, a stool if i'm at your house i will use whatever i can find i will turn pad bids on the pad bins on the side out in public so So i I use toilet rolls too so i'll put my feet up on toilet rolls but yeah so look we you know they talk about sitting as a new smoking but our bodies weren't designed to drive cars our bodies weren't designed to sit at right angles at on chairs at tables couches leaning back all the time like we see you know, this in positions of babies at term, like we are not forward leaning very much anymore. We don't squat. And so, you know, I know Meg Askin talks about 300 squats a day, A, because it's epic prep for that whole space in terms of bum, hips, and pelvic floor. All of that, all the muscles and connective tissue in that area, every time you come down into a squat, you lengthen. Every time you come up, you contract. So it's this incredible preparation for birth and postpartum. 
But then you think about what happens in postpartum. We do all of these things often while holding a baby when our body's in a stretched state. And so the body is completely stretched and open. You're adding extra weight and then you're not moving functionally. And so what, I mean, our bodies are super clever and they get conditioned. So they get strong to do these incorrect movements. But, you know, people think back pain is normal. Pain is your body's way of saying, Something doesn't feel right. We need to do something about it. And you just have to look at the amount of people. Like if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I get neck pain. Yeah, I get headaches. Yeah, I get shoulder pain. Yeah, I get back pain. Yeah, I've got constipation. Yeah, I've got prolapse. Like all of these are alignment issues. There must be a technique, a way to do a proper good functional squat. It's not just about like, I mean, assuming it's not just about putting yourself down into a squat and getting up 300 times. Like, how should we do a good? Yeah, I've been meaning to. I've done a video on this on Instagram. I'm doing another one that's a bit more up to date. But there's a lot to squatting, um, and you need to build the strengths first. And you know, people say to people postpartum, "Oh, well, don't squat." Every time you get off the toilet, every time you get off a chair, if you do it properly, that's a squat. If you don't do it properly, you're using momentum, you're often holding your breath. And this is where the issues lie, right? Because if we don't have the strength for the exercise, we hold our breath and we bear down. And when we bear down, we often bear out and down. So we're bearing out through our core, we're bearing down through our pelvic floor. And that's when we get issues like, um, or symptoms like um, of problems like diastasis recti and prolapse, because we've strained that area and so our body when we hold our breath what we're trying to do is increase our intra-abdominal pressure to do an exercise so our body is completely obedient it'll do what we tell it to do but at the cost of us basically breathe out while breathe out as you come up so this is all in my core and floor program. So I teach what I call the lift and wrap, which is a co-activation of the pelvic floor and deep core muscles. The biggest thing is diaphragmatic breathing. So basically the diaphragm is the top of the core unit. The pelvic floor is the base. And so we need to get the core working in synergy. And that is what my program is all about. And I want to, I'll ask a few questions of you later too. I have to remind myself, but so where did you want to start with talking about the pelvic bowl? Like, is there something we need to know first? Well, I think the biggest thing is to really acknowledge the loss of connection to our pelvic space. Typically, if we look at our story around our pelvic space, like most of us as young girls were, some of you may not have been, and if this is you, that's epic, but most of us were discouraged from having anything to do with that space. Like I told this story on another podcast the other day of how the first time ever my clitoris got hard, right? I remember looking down at my vulva and being like, now I need to swear here. I'm not going to, I'm going to do this in the clean version. Like, oh my goodness, what's happened to me? Like totally ruined my climax because like- I was in my 20s. Okay, yeah. Like I was, I'd been having sex for a long time, but it just hadn't, clitoral erection hadn't come about because sex for me really in my late 20s, early 30s was all about pleasing the guy because that like was my education around sex. Like female pleasure is really only, I feel, like just starting to come become mainstream. But to give about female pleasure, just when you're finished your story. No, I want to hear it now. Don't let my story get in the middle of your story. (laughs) Um well, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm going all blushy. This is the story, right? Like I'm not gonna blush. I'm going to you say can it. Blush. You can blush. <laughs> we'll work through your blushing. We'll work through your story together, Mel. If I was telling this not on a public forum where thousands of people are going to hear it, I probably wouldn't blush. I'd just say it, but I'm blushing. Just imagine <laughs> it. Talk like no one's listening. <laughs> so have you ever heard of Skeens? I think it's Skeens. Oh, yes. I want to hear this bit. Yes. Tell me. Okay. Okay. So if you're having sex, also, by the way, on the orgasm thing, if you're not having orgasms every single time you have sex, then I think that is an issue that needs to be explored right away, either with your partner or yourself. I'm just saying. That's I a re- whole podcast. Mel. I know. I just think there should be a female expectation that we orgasm every time we have sex. But anyway, and hang on, can I tell you why? The 
clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings. Do you know how many the penis has? Tell me. 4,000. Only 4,000. So we should be orgasming twice as much as men. That is the worst kept secret in the world. And don't they say that actually women are capable of multiple orgasms Mm. back to back, but men take longer to kind of recoil and replenish. So, and this understanding clitoral orgasm, understanding orgasm, because people talk about different types of orgasm, but if you really truly understand the shape and makeup of the clitoris, the G spot is actually in the clitoris and so the clitoris is this the button that we've been made to believe the clitoris is is not erectile it is simply um that it's where the nerves are right which is why then there's eight thousand in that tiny little button and then the clitoris actually goes up under the pubic bone and then extends all the way down the sides of the labia which is really important when we talk about birth which i thought this podcast was going to be about but it's not we're just going to do another one now we'll get there we're just interrupting each other's stories like i haven't finished my first one you haven't finished yours but this is um that's where the erectile tissue is when the sides of the labia and so that's why sex through um, orgasm through penetration and different types of orgasm is is possible but tell me about schemes i want to hear about schemes you know it was recently i can't believe we I don't know if you were ever taught this. I've done anatomy and physiology multiple times at university as a student. I've taught anatomy and physiology to midwives and I'm a midwife and a woman. And I only just recently discovered skeins glands. So I figured if I didn't know, then Mm. maybe all of you guys out there don't know. Okay, skeins gland, obviously it was named after a man as is every other female organ. So these are glands that are associated with your urethra, so where your urine comes out, and they are actually excretory glands. Mm-hmm. And some, some, plate, some research equates it to kind of like the male prostate but in a female version in terms of its, yeah. But the skeins glands. So if, and this comes, this is where it comes into sex and orgasm, if you have ever felt like you're about to orgasm, but also that you're about to wee yourself and you've held back, you've kind of clenched in a way to hold the wee back, thinking you're about to wet yourself, you're probably not weeing yourself. It's your skin glands ejaculating, the female yeah. version of ejaculation, Yeah, ejaculating fluid in response to an orgasm. It's the female equivalent of ejaculating. And there's a word Which, for it, but I don't squirtus. know. Right, squirtus. I know, but now do I need to put illicit on this now? On this, Squirting? But you can squirt anything. I could squirt okay. you with my water pistol oh, or my skin like, glands. Or my skin glands. Oh, gosh, it's happening. So, and I feel hey, like. you watched Super Podcast with me. Oh this God. stuff was bound to come and out. Anyway, what I want to tell you all. Like, people need to know this because this mm. is not, it doesn't matter who you are or where you live. So. We were all deprived of knowledge and around the clitoris, right? Like if you really want to know how deprived we are, firstly, you just have to look at the fact we call our vulva our vagina. The vagina is not all of it. The vagina is the space, the opening and the space inside where the baby comes out of, blood comes out of, things can go into if you're having penetrative sex, right? That's the vagina. The vulva is all of it from the mons pubis, which is that like meaty bit on top of your pubic bone. It's the clitoris. It's your labia majora, which is the outer lips, the labia minora, inner lips. It's um, the fourchette, which is the um, triangle bit at the bottom of the introitus, um, which is the opening to the vagina. It's the perineum. It's that whole area is the vulva. So if some of you will be learning this for the first time today, I just want to say it's okay. I was like 21 and studying midwifery when I realized we had three holes, right? I was about to help babies come out of bodies and I was like, hold up, wait, what, what? There's a separate wee hole? Like I just missed that day in sex ed or the teacher called out somebody else's name and I got confused. You know, our parents should be telling us this. Like I, my daughter's five Mm. and from a very young age, she knew, so we've talked about three holes. You've got a wee hole, a baby hole and a poo hole. And she calls her vulva a vulva 
and so much so and so nonchalantly like we um were in the shops and she wanted to slide down this rail she's like mum can I slide down this and I said I wouldn't recommend it and like it was nothing she said oh yeah that might be a bit uncomfortable for my vulva so we can Mm. we can teach our kids like break this cycle we can but I think like I think to put that on our parents like I do believe our parents did the very best they could with all they had I don't think my mum knows what a vulva is right I don't think my mum would know I didn't know until I was in my 30s and I'd been a midwife for 10 years like exactly and my daughter (laughs) knows what a menstrual cup is for and where it goes and when she was three she drew a picture of me and when I asked her what was in my tummy, she told me it was my menstrual cup. Oh, you know, so they, yeah, right. This is going to shock a lot of people, but my, my, we co shower. And so my sons know that I bleed. I mean, Louis is too little, but Banjo knows I bleed. Every month it still shocks him. Like every month he's still like, what, what's going on? Why can't we have a bath? Because I would say, oh, I'm not having a bath because mommy, it's that time of my month and mommy's bleeding. And we now have this, um, you know, I got this um, idea from Lael Stone. She um, used to honour her period when her children were little by lighting a candle and they would know mommy's bleeding, mommy needs to rest, we need to do more of the work in the family to honour mum. And, like, my husband buys me period presents, which I hated when I first met him, and now I'm like, yeah, I want you to be compassionate to me at this time because this is my time to release physically and emotionally and you know this is like about anatomy as well well it's so so if we go back to anatomy we go back to the clitoris it was only in 2005 right so 17 years ago only in 2005 that a australian urologist did some incredible work through mri to be able to understand the clitoris the clitoris was often left out up until 2005 and, and probably a little bit past because if we think about research impacting practice. But I was studying in 2007. So this explains why this wasn't part of our knowledge at university, let alone sex ed, right? But um, the clitoris would often be left out of anatomy books. And when it was drawn, it was shown, drawn very, you know, 2D and flat. Now, the clitoris is actually incredibly large and needs to be seen in that, like, multi, I think they call it multi-planar. Yeah, like multiple planes like planes multiple planes yeah Yeah. to to fully be able to understand it right and so it was only in 2005 when she did this research that they were able to include the parts that go down the labia into the shape of the clitoris or as a part of the clitoris and now like we've got new research that came out last year i think it was that we'll put it in the um resource list that shows that medial lateral episiotomy cuts into that erectile tissue and when i tell that yes pardon i was just gonna say so many midwives like whenever you and i've seen when you post on the clitoris um on social media and when i've posted there's always that those people I'm a midwife and we, you know, you don't cut a episiotomy into the clitoris that, you know, an episiotomy goes down into the, you know, and, but actually what, what we're saying is, is that the clitoris is not a button above your urethra on your vulva. It actually, that's where it protrudes, but it goes in, into your body and out and around behind your labia and around your vagina. Like there's, a whole mm. clitoral body and clitoral anatomy around your vagina. So if you have an episiotomy, we're not saying they cut the clitoris part that you can see on the top of your vulva. They are cutting the internal anatomy of your clitoris, including the nerves and the clitoral body. You know, erectile right. tissue and so we only really understood this in 2005 and the clitoris so um colbert was like this guy that did all this incredible um anatomy research but he never like gave a specific name or word for the entire cluster of erectile parts and so they were just often left off and now and this is where 
this kind of stuff has really played out in pushing because we always thought the clitoris was simply and purely for sexual function. And I've been heard saying that as well. It's the only body body part that's for sexual function. So we should be having orgasm. And what Mel's saying around we should be having orgasm, A, for the pure enjoyment of life and to be able to love life and feel the epicness that orgasm enables us to feel and the hormones and the flow and effect to our or every cell in our body in terms of the goodness that orgasm gives us but it is in, it, for me it is the ultimate birth prep emotionally and physically because now what we're starting to understand and this is there is no research on this there is nothing documented and it's really interesting when you look at fetal ejection reflex the evidence around it talks about the pelvic floor and the baby coming in contact with the pelvic floor but what we're now starting to understand and i really feel a phd coming on in this area i think this is really where i need to do my phd in is it's the baby's head as it comes under that pubic arch it comes in t- so the the clitoris extends up to that pubic arch and is internal to the bone so as the head comes down there and then it comes around comes up and under it sweeps that internal clitoral tissue and so the belief is that it's that stimulation of the clitoris that now extends the messages to the pituitary gland that send off that oxytocin that allows the pelvic floor to do what it does in orgasm right so it makes complete sense that the 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 way the this area functions during sex would be the same way it functions during birth because it would you wouldn't have the same body part doing different functions when it can do the same thing and practice it for different events in life and so biologically and anatomically it makes incredible sense that this part isn't just for pleasure that it's it's also for birth. And so the head comes around, it stimulates the clitoris, you get that spasming of the pelvic floor. And if anyone has been able to observe physiological undisturbed birth, the contractions during this time are completely different and they're quite shorter and spasmic. And so what's happening is the belief is the pelvic floor kind of spasms, just like it does in pre-climax. So it does that during sex to like draw the sperm in and when that happens there's this movement through the sacrum and opening and then the ejection is the release and the lengthening which again happens when we either ejaculate as women and the skeins glands i haven't looked into that but it would make perfect for perfect sense (laughs) that it would you would you know if birth is um undisturbed and ejaculation was possible because orgasmic birth is possible i've only ever seen it twice in my practice and it's only ever been at home and both times i've been like really feel like i should be here I just want to like go into another room. That would make sense around the lubrication. And the belief is because the, you know, the clitoris is quite cushiony when it's hard, that it really cushions and protects baby's head as it comes out and around. And so you get the exact same function and movement play out let's guess it's a function of that space in orgasm as you do birth which is why it is so important so many women going to their first pregnancy never orgasming you know and when i say everyone should be orgasming i'm not saying that like what i'm saying is as well you should have a partner who is invested in you orgasming each time it's not like yeah women are functionally capable of orgasm but just like with birth, the environment and the people are so important. Mm. And if we orgasm, that's like, you know, that's oxytocin happening as well. You know, oxytocin release is a love hormone and only happens in the presence of people that we love and feel safe with. Same thing with birth is that, you know, you need the same environment and affection for the people in the space as you would. Yeah. I've got an epic reel coming up on Instagram. I just have to convince my husband to make it all around this to really demonstrate that because when you understand that, that's when you understand all the other stuff that we talk about mm-hmm. around medicalization of childbirth and disturbed birth. Well, and imagine having sex in an unfamiliar space with the door unlocked, knowing that anyone could walk in at any time. Oh, so my early 20s. Right. Well, and judging, all the, 
Well, and they would be judging your performance. Which is why I never orgasmed. Even now, even in a completely quiet house in my own space, I say to my husband, please close the door. He's like, what? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I just need to be yeah. certain of yeah. absolute privacy if yeah. it's going to happen. And I just yeah. can't concentrate otherwise. So imagine what happens to women in birth who are expected to essentially have sex in front of strangers and multiple strangers walk in at any time. Yeah, so we've kind of covered little smidges of all of this, but basically if we want to take it back to the pelvic wall or the pelvic floor or bowl, this area needs to be in balance for birth. It needs to be out of, and what balance means, because we often, there's so many memes out there around a strong pelvic floor, we see strength as epic, but it's really balance that we want to be coming at. So balance means the muscle will contract when it's needed to. It will lengthen when it's needed to, but it will coordinate. Coordination is the key of all of our muscles, but in, especially in this space, because so much is dependent on the coordination of the contraction and the lengthening. So when we wee, the pelvic floor lengthens for we to come out. When we stop, want to stop, we come out, coming out, we contract. Same with poo and farts. When we want poo to come out, we lengthen. When we want it to stop or finish, we contract. Same with babies. The contraction happens to help baby rotate and move through the pelvis and open the space up. And then the lengthening happens when we want the baby to come out. So there needs to be coordination, which, you know, there is great evidence around pelvic floor exercises, both in pregnancy and postpartum to assist with birth and healing. My big passion is bringing it into functional movement and exercise because the majority of us have not been cued ever to bring our pelvic floor into exercise and we've been cued incorrectly to activate our core. So we often get told to suck it in. Um, and as women, we do this a lot. So typically women hold a lot of tension in their core space, A, because we're always trying to get that flat stomach and we hold our breath in a lot, um, B, because we feel like everything's falling out, so we tense it, and then emotional tension plays out in this space incredibly. And pr previous story, so what stories are there for you? what's there because often it's stories from our past that hold us back to getting connected with this space it's also cultural but we've lost all ceremony and ritual around what we do as and what our bodies do as women but we've lost most ceremony and ritual around bleeding it's you know used to look like you know there's a reason we bleed in sync with other women because we're all meant to. Like when I lived in the village in the Solomons, you would know that the women in the village were bleeding because they would spend more time by the water um, washing regularly and the sarong, they would wear a sarong the whole time. You never really saw blood on it, but it was it was wet. It was often washed. Um, and so there was that connection between them. It wasn't anything that they were out in open and, and they were still doing what they needed to do to keep their families alive. But, they, you know, we don't, have that ceremony and ritual we really expect ourselves to just get on with it you know i really see bleeding our bleeding time now is this incredible time to release emotional and physical tension that is there i see it as this incredible offering our culture doesn't give that to us as teenagers growing up and most women into their first pregnancy most women into that first pregnancy with a huge gap in knowledge about themselves, their emotional selves, their physical selves, their pelvic space and birth because we don't grow up hearing birth, seeing birth. The amount of couples that I care for who are holding a baby for the first time in maybe forever or 20 or 30 years, like when I was in the Solomons, there wasn't a minute that went by where a child wasn't around me, even at work, even in the birth suite. There were just kids everywhere. We can go 20 years without seeing a child in our life. Mm. Like it, we're just so removed from so much of the nourishment and knowledge that enables us to go through these processes in life with so much more confidence. I have a webinar I'm actually doing tonight. So when people are listening to this, it will be in the past, but you can buy it for like 10 bucks that you can buy the recording all around preparing the pelvic bowl, the pelvic space for birth and the lowdown on pushing. So there's um, that, there's my free antenatal classes that people can watch and then my programs. So my, I've got a pregnancy program. I've got a restore program for preconception and postpartum and they're all around their education as well as exercise, but really starting to understand your core unit and your body a little bit better. 
and that's um, um, and moving forward core and core and floor restore yeah. yeah, and I'm really, if anyone is super keen, I am putting together, I'm not going to give you much information, but there's going to be a new program coming out next year. Um, and I need selfies. I need vagina selfies. Um, so wherever, or actually, I just made a mistake and that's okay. Velfies are vulva selfies. See, we're so trained, aren't we? Vulva selfies. So wherever you are in your life, if you're preconception, if you are 99 years old or anywhere in between, um, obviously over the age of 18, please, but yeah. sending. It has to um, be over. Must, has must, to be. Must, okay. must, 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 must. So you can send them to my email address, hello at quorumfloor.com.au and with a vulva story if you like, but basically trying to get it put together. You know, if you've got a prolapse, that would be epic to be able to see that. Hair, no hair, prolapse, no prolapse, episiotomy scar, no episiotomy scar, because the thing that we really need to start to understand is this space is so different for all of us. You know, we talk about the clitoris being cut. The space and the alignment of our organs is so very different. Um, and understanding that, like when I do an internal examination and internal release work, you know, it's I always find it amazing where people's cervixes are because they're never in the same spot. And they're often not in the same spot if I do the same thing on a person again and again. Have you seen on Instagram the Volva Gallery? It's called. Yeah, they're amazing. Yes. So yeah. if you haven't yet, I would really encourage <laughs> yeah. you. That's an amazing resource, the Volva Gallery. Mm-hmm. This person's also done a book and it's all about educating. It's so lovely. Like educating mm. people about the anatomy of the vulva. It's it's a inc- beautiful, beautiful really, book. Really well done. The other thing I was going to say around that is, you know, as my, in my work as a midwife, after women have, have their babies, there's a, there's a moment in our care of women and we will check if they've had any perineal or labial tears or any vaginal wall trauma during the birth, which we'll have a whole episode on actually, so I'm not going to go into Mm. detail. But often, you know, there's a choice to be stitched or not, and I'll say to them, does this look like your vulva as you remember it? Probably 70% of women Mm -hmm. have actually never actually seen their vulva. Yeah. Yeah. So can I encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't actually sat in front of a mirror, spread eagle, and had it, and actually inspected your own vulva and your own anatomy, I just would encourage you to do that as a way of understanding what's down there. Yeah, and when people comment to me um, postpartum when they think they've got a prolapse, they're often the first comment is, I wish I had a reference point. And the other thing I want to say around this is pregnant vulvas look completely different to preconception and postnatal vulvas. Like your vulva has a a lifespan and it changes throughout its journey. Um, And so if you're looking at at your vulva for the first time in pregnancy, pregnant vulvas are big, they're lush, they're spacious. They're engorged. They are engorged. They're engorged. And they can look very scary if you actually haven't looked again because you think, why is it so big? It's meant to be big. It's meant to be engorged. It's meant to look like that. But and then post early postpartum it does too. Like I remember after I had banjo standing in the bathroom by myself about to have my first shower and just being like, um, whose vulva is this? Like, where did mine go? And who gave me this one? Because this isn't mine. Like, I'd like mine back now. What has just happened to my body? Um, and I wasn't expecting that. And I'm a midwife and I'd looked at vulvas my, for like the last 10 years. But for some reason, mine wasn't going to do that. But I never lived that before. So I saw it as what I saw was perfectly normal, but it wasn't mine. So it was very different when it happened to my own. Totally. Oh, my gosh, B, I, I learned so much. I didn't, so I haven't even covered the points I that I, I sent Mel an outline because Mel <laughs> needed an outline and I'm stressed about this outline and then I just smudged all this research together and I didn't even go through it. Um, okay, because but I feel like it was do. epic. Yeah, it was amazing. And we're actually going to do, we'll do way more of these. That that yeah. work is not lost, B, because we're going to revisit that and break it down mm. and do more. Yeah, can I also tell people about My Beautiful Cervix is an incredible website. My Beautiful Cervix is a website. Have you seen this? I haven't seen My Beautiful Cervix. 
Oh, Melanie, this is what, and when I teach students, this is what I get them to look at. So it's this incredible project that started between a couple and now people all around the world have it con- contributed. So you can look at a cervix um, with an IUD and you can look at a cervix throughout the cycle. You can look at menopausal cervix. You can look at preconception cervix. You can look at cervixes that have had babies and really start to understand what you feel. So cervix, mybeautifulcervix.com is amazing. There's also comfortable in my skin and Instagram account um and i i think she's got flip through my flaps and she does so you can flip through my flaps i think you can go and have a session with her where she photographs your vulva and she does all these beautiful body work sessions where people get really comfortable with their bodies but i think we're at time and i hope everyone enjoyed that can i tell you one last story about yes please so when I was having my second baby, Frida, she came, she was coming what I felt like was pretty fast compared to my first. And there was a point where she was fully crowning. And at each time when when Charlie was fully crowning, I remember thinking, yeah, that's not that bad. Yeah, there's some stretch there. Same thing with Frida. I was like, yep, there's that sensation again. There's the stretch. But I felt this urge to uncontrollably giggle, like hysterically giggle, like a mad woman. Um, it, like it was uncontrollable. I had it, it came out, and I remember my midwife whispering to the other midwife next to her, "What is she doing?" And I just said, "I am so elated," and like there was a baby about to come out of my vagina. And it was, I still remember the sensation and just how hysterically laughing I was. And mm-hmm. I can, you know, and when people say, oh, my gosh, was it an orgasmic birth? I don't think it was, I wouldn't call it orgasmic, but it was cloud nine, next level bliss. Yeah. bliss like, And that's what the fetal ejection reflex is when people talk about falling in love with their babies instantly, it's because they've had that. So that oxytocin is at its highest possible dosage that you will ever receive in your life. And so it might not feel orgasmic in sexual experience of orgasm for you, but it's orgasmic in terms of elation and euphoria and love and connection and pre- being present. And, you know, I've had the fetal ejection reflex and I and I got that the second time. I didn't get the first time because I went into shock. And that's what a lot of women, even if they've experienced the fetal ejection reflex, um, they may experience shock and the adrenaline knocks that oxytocin off and they don't get that elation. Yeah, and I love that you giggled. I was going to say, do you giggle oh, in orgasm? Is that I something? Don't, no, I don't, no. Even no. TMI, I do not giggle in orgasm. Um, but I did, and it wasn't even a giggle. I It was a hysterical, evil-style oh. laugh. Like Wow. I can't, I couldn't even replicate it if I tried. Wow. Yeah. And it did you feel that? No, no, complete yeah. sort of it's all in the past now. It's, it's there. They stay alive in my in memory. memory. That's epic. I love it. Mm. So cool. Thanks so all much right, for team. your preparation, B. That was magic. <laughs> my preparation for the this was just my knowledge coming out in a in a big moment like it normally does without all the preparation hasn't come. That'll be another episode. I think but um knowledge vomit is how we would describe our podcast. Yes, good. See you next episode. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah!